0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Rising sea levels, extreme weather patterns, extinctions of species. Our planet needs protecting. I'm Adam Vaughan, the environment editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope from The Times. In partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. In this podcast, we hear from leading experts from around the world who are committed to finding solutions. These explorers, scientists, entrepreneurs and citizens are committed to a common goal. To protect our home, Earth. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Everyone knows about the SS Titanic. But what do you know about the MS Estonia? On 24 this morning, the ferry boat Estonia suddenly sank into the icy waters of the Baltic Sea.
1: As helicopters again scanned the Baltic, empty life vests evidenced they were in the right. One of the worst disasters to his country in modern times. Suffering from severe hypothermia, after hours spent in the darkness and the cold water. i have given up hope now of finding anyone else alive.
2: The car ferry, sailing overnight between Tannin and Stockholm, went down on September 27th 1994. 852 people, mostly Swedes and Estonians, died. It was the worst peacetime maritime disaster in European waters. For a quarter of a century, the wreck and its dead had been undisturbed. But now, after an illegal dive by a Swedish documentary filmmaker to the site of the crash, All kinds of questions are being asked about that fatal night.
0: It's 852 souls lost in this very tragic disaster. And and I think it's very important that we find exactly what happened that night.
2: You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, what happened to the MS Estonia?
3: I'm Matthew Campbell, and I'm the Sunday Times Foreign Features Editor.
2: Matthew was working in Moscow when the Estonia sank. He remembers it well.
3: From the very beginning, it was this story about the ferry setting off from Tallinn in Estonia on the way to Stockholm. It's a 15-hour journey, and halfway across, you know, sinking very quickly, And at the time, it was very quickly established that it was something to do with malfunctioning doors on the bow. In other words, this is a car ferry, giant great thing, with cabins for up to 2,000 people. And the car deck, you know, it's a roll-on, roll-off ferry. So it's got this ramp that goes up when all the cars are loaded and can come down again afterwards. And then they drive down the ramp. But it's also got this thing called a visor going over the bows, which goes up and down. And it was this visor which came off.
2: Just two Britons were aboard the ship. One survived, Paul Barney.
1: I'd spent quite a few weeks in Scandinavia, travelled all the way up to uh, the Cap in northern Norway. And then I got invited over to Tartu University to uh, look at some forest and I was going to drive back across Denmark, catch the ferry back to England.
2: Paul Barney is the first survivor of a major disaster I've ever interviewed. In 1994, he was in his mid-30s and was travelling around Scandinavia and the Baltic on a Winston Churchill travel fellowship. He'd just been visiting a university in Estonia and was en route back to Britain via Stockholm.
1: There was no cabins available on the way over, so I'd slept in the restaurant. On the way back, I thought, well, I might try booking some cabins and then halfway through the the booking experience i just felt no i'll uh, i'd i'd spent a night from harwich to esberg already on this trip and was found it pretty claustrophobic down there so i was sort of reticent and changed my mind which was probably a life-saving decision the restaurant was higher in the ship much higher the, the cabins were below the car deck and the restaurant was well above it so you're quite a few Levels above the sea level.
2: That night, the waters of the Baltic were rough.
1: And I do remember clearly putting an arm down the side of the bench to try and stabilise myself so I could sleep well. So it must have been a bit rougher than normal.
2: At one in the morning, he was woken up by a huge bang.
1: What rushed through my mind was that we were travelling through the archipelago and we'd probably hit rocks. I also was quite concerned by the list on the ship, which was a permanent five-degree It seemed like that, you know, there was no rocking backwards and forwards. It was leaning to one side, and that list was gradually increasing. So that led alarm bells to uh, ring. I was then on a voyage of discovery. I really needed to find out what was wrong and what was going on. As the list began... What went through your head? Well, I've a, been a bit of a seafarer over my years, and I realised that a permanent list wasn't natural behaviour, and that's where I it led me to make my way out to the doors to the promenade deck to, to ascertain what was actually going on. And what did you see, and what did you find? I found a, a Force 9 gale and pitch black and really rough seas, an Estonian guy at the doors as well, trying to work out what to do. And I remembered, I asked him, how long would we survive in the water? And he said, four minutes. And I replied, I don't fancy that. So that was the stage. We did have the only announcement over the tannoy. And it was in Estonian, and it said it's an emergency.
2: So you're up there with a guy has just told you you'd survive in the water for four minutes. You then get this announcement that says... It's an emergency, which you've
1: probably already worked out. We had indeed. Um, yeah. Which is not really desperately helpful, is it? It certainly wasn't helpful. I'd actually put my boots on and then I took my boots off because I thought they're not going to be any use. I'm going to be in the water. And I was also looking for a life raft or life belt or life jacket, and none of that was immediately apparent. I was starting to blaspheme because I felt trapped, to be honest. And uh, I do remember it starting to get very angry. With the fact that I couldn't escape this, it felt as though uh, I had uh, a lot of life to live effectively. By which time I was sat on this door with the Estonian guy, and we were moving around the frame of the door as the ship was listing. So that enabled us not to be thrown around. And then the doors actually fell off. I remember that. And roughly around that same time, there was a life on a bulkhead on the promenade deck. And, uh, well, I thought about it. But the Estonian guy went for it before me and jumped across this ravine, grabbed the life belt and was then was immediately washed away by a big wave which came over the stern of the ship. And I thought, well, oh, bloody hell, I nearly did that. Wow. You mean he didn't survive? I haven't heard every single survivor story, but to be honest, at that stage of the evening to be washed out in a life belt, you, you wouldn't have stood much chance.
2: He's now gone over and you're still there and you don't have a life belt. What happened then?
1: So first of all, the, the main generator went and then the backup generator went. So we're now in pitch black, effectively. And all of a sudden, what happened was the clouds opened up a bit and allowed a bit of moonlight to come through. And so the ship was almost 90 degrees at this stage. I noticed above me which happened to be pipework on the ceiling before the ship was turned 90 degrees. So this pipework suddenly turned into a ladder, which enabled me to climb out of the ship onto the upturned hull, effectively. So I climbed out and I was immensely relieved and happy about the fact that I'd managed to get out, but only to, as far as the ship was now practically disappearing in the sea. And it was almost like a giant surfboard, if you imagine, that's all we could see. The deck had almost disappeared. And all we left now was, was a giant flat hull with black holes where the portals would be. And I was just stood there in my socks all on my own. And I did have time to reflect, of all the places in the world, what a place to be, (laughs) you know, standing on a sinking ship all on my own in my socks in a Force 9 stroke Force 10 gale. And did have time to reflect upon the ludicrousness of it, but realised I had to do a lot more to save myself. So the ship's about 150 metres long. So I then had to make my way all the way down the hull to these life rafts which were being inflated.
2: Now at the same time as you're doing that are there other people around?
1: No one else as far as I was aware came out apart from the Estonian uh, guy came out of the, uh, the stern of the ship.
2: You're on your own and you've got to get there. What happens then?
1: I make my way all the way down there and there is the last as far as I could tell one of the last life rafts being inflated and being pushed by a few people. I help a few people to push the life raft into the water and as we hit the the water, I jump in and a few other people jump in. But immediately the life raft is turf flipped upside down. And I'm upside down in the water. Now that I had to get out, swim to the surface and then climb on the upturn life raft.
2: So you've got to get out from underneath. And how cold is it?
1: Well, it was fairly shockingly cold, the exposure with the gale increasing all through the night. So you had rains, slash sleet through the night, effectively. So it it is pretty chilly and people were um, dying of exposure fairly quickly.
2: So you managed to get onto the upturned life raft and there are people around you and they're not all surviving.
1: They are at the beginning, so we're pulling people in. We're pulling people out of the water. It's a chaotic scene of screams and and shouting and and waves, obviously, and just a terrible uh, mass of people trying to get on board some form of life raft. And we probably had about 16 people, maybe, got on at this stage. We didn't have a sea anchor anymore. We were drifting away fairly quickly, along with lots of other life rafts, which were empty. It's like a scene
2: from A Total
1: Nightmare, isn't it?
2: I mean, you know, there you are with 16 people on a life raft, some of whom are in a very bad way, and you're surrounded by life rafts which could save other people, but they're empty.
1: It was definitely a nightmare scenario. From that relative calm that I had experienced when I'd escaped the ship at the other end of the ship to suddenly be faced with this chaos, and then lots of distress, obviously, on board our life raft. You must have thought several times, I'm not going to make this. If you'd let yourself think like that, then you wouldn't. So I I, I think you have to maintain positivity. If you lose that positivity, then you're on a slippery slope. And, And I think you have to believe that you are going to survive.
2: After hours in the life raft, a helicopter came to their rescue and winched all those who were still alive to safety.
1: I should have been dead, really, anyway, from core body temperature. I think I was down to 28 degrees and I was on intensive care for two days to get my core body temperature up again. Quite gruelling.
2: We'll go back to the story of MS Estonia in just a minute. But first, I want to tell you about how to become a subscriber. To enjoy more remarkable stories every day, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times today and get one month free. Search thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times.
3: A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times.
2: And think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
0: Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Then came the
2: inevitable inquests and inquiries into exactly what had happened and the decisions about whether to raise the ship. And it wasn't a process that satisfied the relatives of those who had died, to say the least. Here's Matthew Campbell again.
3: The families of these victims have been appalled by the way this has been handled by the authorities. From the very beginning, it it seemed that there was something very strange about the the reaction of the authorities, because from the start, the, the Swedish government in particular was saying, you know, it is very important for us to salvage the ship and recover all of the bodies so that they can be laid to rest with dignity. And then very quickly, their tune suddenly changed quite abruptly. Carl Bild, Prime Minister of Sweden, said that it wasn't going to be possible. Then there was a change of government in Sweden, and I think um, the next Prime Minister, Ingvar Carlsson, was even more determined, you know, not to salvage the ship. Instead, they came up with this rather bizarre idea. When you think about it, of entombing it in concrete to keep out intruders and to literally. Bury it or cover it up. You know, it's a great metaphor for the cover up that is strongly suspected. Whether or not it's a cover up or just complete bungling by the authorities is yet to be determined. <laughs>
2: The plan to cover the ship was never completed. But in 1995, a treaty signed by Sweden, Finland, Estonia, Latvia, Poland, Denmark, Russia and the United Kingdom declared the site effectively an ocean cemetery, prohibiting their citizens from even approaching the wreck. The
0: Estonia disaster, for me as a Swede, is one of the big stories. Everybody that was alive back then remembers where they were when they got the news about this tragic, massive accident out in the Baltic Sea.
2: That's Henrik Evertson. He's the Swedish journalist and documentary filmmaker who led the illegal mission to the wreck of the Estonia.
0: It's a quite complicated case because it was investigated back then, and uh, what we are lifting in the documentary series is that it's a wariness of the relatives and also the survivors that maybe we didn't get uh, all the answers back then, and maybe there are other significant reasons why the ferry went down. That has been the wariness that we are trying to portray in the series, and uh, we also make uh, a diving down to the wreck to see if there are any damages to the whole of Estonia.
2: But Henrik knew that the 1995 treaty is only binding on citizens of the signatory countries, which is why last year Henrik and his team chartered a German boat and headed to the wreck site. The boat couldn't legally be stopped, but as a Swede, he was risking a maximum two-year jail sentence.
0: The government has made it impossible to dive to the wreck. So this call to make uh, new investigations has have been there for years. And when the government and so on don't do this diving, as a journalist, of course, it's important to do it to get new information. So you knew that when you started diving on the wreck that this was against the law? Yes, I was well informed of that. We did uh, a lot of both ethical and legal discussions if this was a risk we wanted to take. And as we did the diving, it was of scientific reasons. And also, maybe we can get new answers why the Estonia went down and maybe that could also increase the safety at sea.
2: And so, earlier this year, Henrik and his team set out to where the Estonia rests on the shallow seabed.
0: I think that will be a day I will remember for rest of my life, when we show up at the site of the Estonia's uh, wreck site, the Finnish Coast Guard are on position. Yes, uh, I see
1: you're approaching our location. Uh, what are your intentions?
0: We are a documentary team that uh, do a documentary film about the Estonia disaster.
2: This is a recording of the conversation between Henrik's team and the Finnish Coast Guard who are parked directly over the wreck.
1: Yes, I understand. Is your intention to do some underwater operations? Yes. Uh, In that case, I must inform you that the wreck of Estonia is the final resting place of all the persons lost in this disaster.
0: We know that. Uh, One last question for you. Do you have any
2: Finnish, Swedish, or Estonian nationalities on board? We have two Swedish guys.
1: Yes, we understand that. And uh, for safety of navigation, we are ready to move. A half mile away from this location. Uh oh, that's fine. Thank you very much. Wow. Wow, that's great. The
2: dive went ahead,
0: and... What we found was a a big hole in the hull. It's four metres high and 1.2 metres wide. So it's the shape of a crack, more or less. And it both under and over the waterline. And it's so huge that it's impossible to get it in one frame with the diving robber. So we need to scan it frame by frame. And then we realise that it's a very huge hole in the hull.
2: You're sitting in the boat above, looking at the pictures coming up from the drone, and you're looking round and you think... Gosh.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm using a lot of bad language there, uh, <laughs> to say it fair. Uh, but it's it was, of course, something we, we didn't uh, realise to find. So it's, we were a little bit shocked, but at the same time quite concentrated to, to get good uh, documentation of the hole in the house. So it, it was uh, mixed feelings. But uh, afterwards, when the, we were finished for the day, it was a very special feeling.
2: Is the crack consistent with the main explanation of what happened to the bow doors and the visor at the front of the ship?
0: The official investigation proved that the bow visor was detached and that the ramp inside there was opened and that the car deck were flooded with seawater. What has been argued is that why did the Estonia sank so fast? Could it be another leak in the hull. And they didn't find this damage back in 1994. So it's new uh, information. We tried to calculate how much force and mass are needed to create this kind of uh, damage. And it's a significant mass and uh, force that's needed. We hope that the governments will look into this to see what uh, have causes the hull, the but also if there are other reasons why the ship went down.
2: What have the survivors said to you about your diving on the wreck and what they want?
0: Of course, I am not talking to all survivors and all relatives, but after the series was released, there is a lot of relatives and survivors that have called me and they are very thankful that their narrative now is uh, taken in consideration because this has been a lot of concerns and a lot of worriness around this uh, tragic accident. And there are also other things that they want the government to look into.
2: How was your documentary received in... Estonia, I mean, a lot of Swedes died, obviously, but Estonia is a very small country. This was a very important ship, and a lot of Estonians died too. Has there been a response from that country?
0: Exactly, and and that's also something that is worth to mention, that Estonia is the country that was most affected by this accident per capita. And I think the response in Estonia has been massive, because, of course, Estonia is a small country, and everybody knows someone, you know, MS Estonia had a Estonian flag, so there is uh, their responsibility to look into the case again. And I think they will do it in some way or another.
2: Quite a lot of conspiracy theories have grown up about the Estonia, and some of them are very peculiar and so on. Are you at all worried about how conspiracy theories thrive on this kind of discussion? Or is it your view that if you get to the truth about it, if you actually dive down and see everything, that will get rid of the conspiracy theories?
0: Yes. In the Estonia case, there are a lot of conspiracy theories, and they are quite wild in my point of view. But I think that they are growing up because we are lacking a lot of knowledge And when we don't have knowledge, people start to speculate. So I think the best cure against conspiracy theories are more knowledge. And that was our mission, why we also dive down to the wreck.
2: Conspiracy theories have always fascinated me, and they attend most great disasters. And here, there are quite a few, most focusing on the fact that Estonia had only recently become independent from the USSR, and it was suggested at the time that the ferry was being used to smuggle Soviet-era military hardware out of the country. Here's Matthew again.
3: There was a a customs official, for instance, who was filmed saying, I've been instructed from on high not to look into these cargoes on these lorries and just to let them through. And the government then reacted very oddly to the allegations of a smuggling ring, saying that it didn't really see the point of investigating any further, (laughs) and again was accused of burying evidence. Another sort of riff on the conspiracy theory, the smuggling Of weaponry is that somehow Britain was involved too, Hmm. and that our spies were actually trying to get uh, Soviet era ballistic missile technology out of Estonia. It was electronic equipment and stuff like that. There are accounts of lorries full of military electronic equipment using the ferry, but also there are some witness statements saying that the ferry's departure from Tarlin was delayed that night while they waited for two or three lorries to board and that these were sort of military-looking
2: lorries. It would seem very strange, wouldn't it, even if any of that were true, that it led in any way to the sinking itself. So I imagine the theory is not that any of this led to the ship being sunk, but that it led to them not wanting to raise the ship or to investigate it.
3: Yes. Although I should mention that another part of the theory is that the Russians wanted to stop this weaponry from being smuggled out of Estonia and were fed up with it happening and sabotaged the vessel. Of course, there's no evidence for that whatsoever, but I just thought I'd mention it to show you the full range of of theories.
2: Also, you would have thought there were easier ways of doing it than sinking a ship with a 1,000 people on it.
3: Well, yes. And also the important thing here is that the hole that Henrik Evertson has filmed in the hull on the starboard side does not seem to be the sort of hole that you'd get with an explosion where the metal is blown outwards. It's been sort of pressed inwards, which suggests very strongly some sort of collision with an external object.
2: Paul Barney, the fact that the ship went down so rapidly with him on it, has never quite tallied with the
1: idea that the car deck flooding was the sole cause of the sinking. It went down so quickly. And, and there were lots of reports of water coming in in different places. So this isn't like water coming down the stairs into the cabins that reports of water from different places so i'm still incredibly confused about what happened i saw the ship go down and then and even the graphics these days still show the ship going down in the wrong way it stood on end water had enveloped the stern of the ship and the bow stood right out to the sea Can you imagine the sea is only 80 meters deep there the ship is 150 meters deep so that gives you an idea of what was sticking out the water when it went down there was so many theories but The fact that they can't make the ship or models of the ship sink as fast as the Estonia did by purely ripping open the bow doors, there's so many stories that haven't been cleared up.
2: The idea of an unsolved mystery is obviously heightened in many people's eyes by the decision not to raise the ship off the seabed. It's only 80 metres down, which for a shipwreck is no distance at all. And as Matthew explains, one expert who dived for the wreck said it would be easily salvageable
3: a British diver, a North Sea diver, Stuart Rumble. His company was hired by the Swedish government a few days after the disaster, and they did a dive on the wreck. And he said, you know, at that time, the vessel was perfectly salvageable. It wouldn't have been that complicated. He saw lots of bodies when he went into the wreck, but their brief was not to salvage the bodies at all. And he felt terrible about that. He would have liked to bring them up. It's odd. The Swedish government seems to have thought that it would be too traumatising for the people managing this operation, and that they had to be protected from the terrible sights that they would witness, and that therefore it should not be done.
2: Matthew, what's happening now with the international community? Is there a kind of maritime global view about what should happen?
3: I'm not sure that there is really. As far as I understand, the Swedish government has said that based on this, this evidence, you know, they will look at it and they will decide whether or not there is any cause for uh, another Preliminary type investigation, which doesn't sound all that promising for the family members who are very keen to see a proper investigation, which means a dive on the site again, you know, an officially sanctioned dive. And of course, the Swedish government is saying, well, that's illegal because, you know, it is protected under the law. They would have to change the law to do another dive.
2: And does that mean they'd have to change agreements with other countries as well? As you said, it's not just Sweden involved. Estonia is involved. And also Britain
3: uh, signed this agreement. And some people wonder why that was so. You know, we are not a Baltic country. That, again, has helped to set the conspiracy-minded people wondering whether there was some reason for Britain wanting to prevent people from diving on the wreck as well.
2: So is anything likely to happen? Will the ship, with its hundreds of bodies, be raised or fully investigated? Will there be a new inquiry? Paul Barney thinks there should be.
1: I feel that there's ample reasons to open up the inquiry again, to properly investigate the hull of the ship which never did seem to be investigated. I've never been interviewed by an inquiry. There's only 226 survivors, that so many of them haven't been interviewed. How can you have a proper inquiry without interviewing survivors? I can't believe that. Do you
2: think that if there was an inquiry, or even if there's not, do you think that we will eventually get to the bottom of it?
1: Well, I think the ship is sitting so shallowly, it's not that far down truth must come out eventually i mean you can't hide something or disaster of this size for so long without the truth coming out i mean they haven't tried to raise it or to find out what actually happened it does seem very bizarre to me
2: what do you think of the argument which the authorities have put forward that essentially this is now a huge grave site and that to disturb it would be like disturbing a cemetery
1: well, surely that's a question you have to ask that the families of the deceased. And overwhelmingly, the families of the deceased would welcome any sort of development and to find out what exactly happened or what really went on that night. I believe that they'd rather it the truth came out.
2: You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, Matthew Campbell, Sunday Times Foreign Features Editor, And we also heard from Paul Barney and from Henrik Evertson. The sounds from Henrik's documentary were used with permission from Discovery Plus. You can read more of Matthew Campbell's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producer was Chris Hemmings, the executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by Carla Patella. If you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, you can send us an email by writing to storiesofourtimesatthetimes.co.uk. See you soon.